So, good morning. My name is Harry Strauss. I'm part of the pastoral team here at Forest Grove Church. And it's my assignment to bring the scriptures to you this morning. Uh, I would also just point out there was one announcement we'd like to bring to your attention. Tonight is Sunday night praise. And so we would invite you back for a service tonight at 7 o'clock and to be a part of that experience as we uh, worship God together. So my wife and I have been on holidays. We just got back on Thursday. We went to BC because we thought we'd experience some really nice weather there, but basically rain for the whole week and um, more rain when we came back. I had clearly instructed a number of you to have spring ready for me when I returned, but we were greeted with snow the very first uh, morning back. Uh, One of the things about traveling, and I'm sure this is true for you, is you get to see all kinds of interesting signs. Uh, If I could relate Judy's favorite sign that she saw on her trip, and uh, equally I will relate my sign as well. Uh, Judy really found this funny, and maybe it's her farming background and all the things about tasks and errands that need to be done. But the sign said, if a guy says he will fix it, he will fix it. There is no need to remind him every six months. And I I guess she found that funny. Uh, For mine, it was in Victoria. We were in the harbor area, uh, just a little bit removed from the downtown core of uh, Victoria. And you see the picture of it up there. It is a dock, maybe about 100 yards, 100 meters out into the ocean or into the uh, harbor area there in the midst of houseboats on either sides. And maybe you can read it, maybe you can't, but you come to the end of the dock, and the sign says, Beyond this point, you are under the Pacific Ocean. And so I guess the sign is a little bit of a warning that you should not go beyond this point, lest you uh, drown in the water. So today we are back into our Timothy Titus series, looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3. It is a chapter... I hate to say this to you, but starts off with, uh, well, I shouldn't say I hate to say this to you, but it starts off with just a, um, a view of the world in terms of things are not well in society that in the time that Paul was living in. And equally, we could say perhaps, um, I would actually say more than perhaps, we could say these words are very true of our day and age as well. It begins off by saying, but mark this, there will be terrible times. And then what Paul does is he writes to Timothy, he lists off 19 different sins. And so it's not overly uplifting or positive, uh, but it just lists a lot of sins. And then actually it could be much longer because this is just kind of a sample that Paul gives in terms of the sins of his world and time. And we could equally identify those sins for our world and day as well. And I think we could say, uh, mark this, 2014. These are terrible times. And then he goes on to talk about these terrible times. And in a sense, the text gets worse as you go on, right through to especially verses 6, 7, 8, 9. This is awful. And then it shifts in verses to 10 and through to the end and then talks about perhaps some ways in which we can counter. And not only counter, well, that we could cope with the world that we live in, 
But how do we give witness in a world that is gone so awry in terms of what God would expect, in terms of morals and righteousness and godly living? So in a sense, 2 Timothy chapter 3 is kind of like that warning sign at the end of the dock. Our world is in a sense racing down that dock, plunging into the ocean of sin, and there's a warning out there for our world, but equally a warning for us as well. So what we're going to do is we'll read the 17 verses. I'm going to make a few comments, especially about the first nine verses. And uh, to get into the world of the terrible world, and which is really, I would suggest again, the world that we live in as well. Uh, and um, to get a feel for these verses that these ideas and thoughts that Paul is bringing to Timothy and the church uh, where Timothy was giving leadership. But then we'll shift in verse 10. And Paul then, in the balance of the chapter, he doesn't give a comprehensive statement about, well, how do you live in a messed up world? But he does provide a few ideas and pointers to Timothy on, okay, how do you live in this messed up world? And so that's what we'll bring to your attention as well. And even as we read through the text, I'm not going to identify them right away when I first read through it. But as we, especially again in verses 10 and following, I invite you to be looking at those verses and trying to identify at least one or two. What are one or two ways in which we respond in a world that, if you accept that, in this world that is really messed up and terrible? So, let's step into these verses. But mark this. Verse 1, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Just a few comments about verse 2 on some of them. They will be lovers of themselves. The idea here, the translation is they will be fond of themselves. So it's kind of like the person who is fixated by looking at himself metaphorically in the mirror all the time. Fond of themselves. They will be lovers of money. And we, of course, know that in 1 Timothy it says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. In the very world that we live right now, that love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Love of money is the new idolatry. It's interesting that we have this Bible class that just started today in 1 John in the lounge at 9.30. But it's interesting if you go down to the last verse of 1 John, he kind of abruptly ends the book by just writing and saying, Dear children, keep yourselves from idolatry. And I would venture to guess that if John were living today or Paul were living today and looking at the world around us, they would say that this love of money is the new idolatry of the day. Boastful, proud. This thing about pride can happen without much outward expression. I think one of the classic expressions of pride in the Bible is that of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Those of you acquainted with that story. And here's this Nebuchadnezzar, this leader and this king, and he 
And he takes this moment and he looks over that which he has accomplished. And as he looks over that which he has accomplished, he says, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and the glory of my majesty? That didn't work well with God. If you're acquainted with the story, God was displeased with him saying that. So much so, it's interesting, in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, there's a list of seven things that God hates. And the first one on the list is haughtiness, arrogance, pride. So I always have to be careful, we ourselves, the people of God, that as we look at what we've accomplished, what we've put together, maybe the enterprise that we've built, or that which we have written, or that which we have accumulated and put together, that we never say... As Nebuchadnezzar, oh, is this not the great enterprise that I have put together? Failing to acknowledge God and recognizing God. Abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. And then the text goes on in verse 3. <clears throat> without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Just a few comments about some of these. Without love, the root meaning is akin to that of being hard-hearted people. Unforgiving. To be slanderous, original word is diabolus in Greek, from which we, of course, get the word diabolic. So in other words, slander is kind of devil-like, without self-control. I saw a clip, and maybe some of you uh, people have seen that too, on TV, Sports Channel. The 10 worst scenarios of hockey coaches caught on camera losing self-control. It wasn't pretty. There are all kinds of hockey sticks that were broken in those ten different clips. Brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash. So I guess we just had some racist comments that were made within the NBA with one of the owners of the Clippers. So it's making it all the news, but these rash comments, if they are if they were his comments and They were rash comments and inappropriate comments made by him. Conceited. You know, Romans chapter 12 says, Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment. To be conceited is to be controlled by the thought that I am better than other people around me. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's interesting in Romans chapter 8, not Romans, Revelation chapter 18, you have this chapter about the woe statements against Babylon. And those ways, and I would interpret Babylon there as referring to Rome 1900 years ago. And there's this list of 25 things in which of their excessive luxury and excessive pleasure. And, and the real sin is they were lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And you get this blistering chapter in the last book of the Bible that challenges people of that day. I want to suggest that Revelation chapter 18 is still applicable today. 
a blistering word from God about the inappropriateness, about being lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then the final one here is having a form of godliness but denying its power. There would be churches that last Sunday, Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ across our nation that probably failed to adequately adequately draw attention to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in that resurrection event as the Spirit of God worked through him. So having a form of godliness, but denying its very power. Aren't you glad you came to church? It was my task. That was my assignment to take you through those verses. And we're not done yet. These are the terrible times, and it can become worse. And it does become worse in these verses right here. There are those who find the capacity for increased wickedness through their exploitation of other people. So we pick up in verse 8, verse 6. They are the kind who worm their way into homes. That word worm there is actually those who kind of slip in. Another translator has suggested the word creeping in. So in verse 6 here, we're talking about, dare I say it, creeps. Who, 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 what they will do in verses 6, 7, and 8, and 9. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. These people who are manipulators and controllers, they worm their lives into the lives of those who are the most vulnerable, these, these women. Now, it could be equally gullible men. There are gullible men, too, equally. But the root meaning here is little women, or in other words, weak and thus vulnerable. And oftentimes, the exploitation will come either sexually or financially or emotionally, but those will be the points where there will be manipulation and control by these people who creep into the lives of these very women. Just as Janice and Jamries in verse 8 oppose Moses. Now the Bible doesn't talk about Janice and Jamries anywhere, but tradition would suggest that these are the Egyptian magicians who opposed Moses in Exodus chapter 7. Just as Janice and Jamries opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth They are men of depraved minds. Wow. How bad do people have to get to get that that descriptive statement about them? They are people with depraved minds. And I would suggest our world has got its fair share of people with depraved minds. Um, I'm not pointing to anyone in our community, but my guess is even in the city of Saskatoon, we will have people with, if we use that language of the Bible, their minds are deprived, depraved and caught in the world of depravity. Who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected, but they will not get very, very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. And then we step into verse 10, And we finally shift into the positive. You, however, and we get that shift. And so as we step in these verses, and I'm going to read them without any comments, but um, I invite you to identify one or two ways. So in the midst of this, but mark this, these are terrible times. 
I would suggest when I look at our nation and who we are morally and who we are not morally and where we are with God and where we are not with God, that we live in terrible times as well. So as we read through this, I would invite you to identify, and I will have three that I'll bring to your attention, but try to look for and discern what is Paul saying here in terms of how do we live in a world where we have all kinds of part of society is racing down that dock and jumping into and drowning in that world of sin. Verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Which is an interesting verse. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue. Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you have learned it. And of course the suggestion there is there. Don't go on that dock racing down to the end and jumping into that same sea of sin and humanity. Don't do that. And from how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you not depraved but able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting. And this wonderful line as well, for training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And the thoroughly equipped, I would would underline that, for every aspect of life. The Word of God can equip us so that we can speak and we can act and we can live in a way that God would hope and expect of us as the people of God. So, here are my three suggestions of what I pick up in this text. How do we live? What can we do in the midst of a world that is terrible, is messed up in in many different ways? Number one, as we live life, may we take our cues from those around us who are godly people. We can take our cues from people who are not godly. It's kind of a basic idea here, but this is kind of a key piece that Paul is driving at. Take your cues on the living of life from godly people. Paul says that. He says, you, however, you know about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance. So in verse 10, he is inviting Timothy and then indirectly the church, and now to us as well, to follow the example of his life, his teaching, sound teaching, his way of life, his walk, his purpose. Rick Warren talked about the purpose-driven life. Paul is talking here about the purpose-driven life, his faith, his patience and love, and his endurance, a key concept in 2 Timothy. So the question really that begs asking for all of us, for me and for all of us, is who are we following? Who are we reading? Who are we watching? 
Who are we admiring? Who are you fans of? Whose tweets are you following? Whose blogs are you reading? Whose life are we trying to emulate? Who we follow gives indication of our values. And our values will shape our decisions every day and will really determine if we're a contributor to the mess in verses 1 to 9 or we're a challenger to verses 1 to 9 by our lifestyle. And the invitation here with Paul as he says this to Timothy is you, however, know all about this. The invitation is to identify the people out there that you deem and you see as godly people. And you look to them as your role models and you get your cues from them. Get your directions from them. And that would include, you know, tweets from godly people. Include reading the biographies of godly people. It would include being connected with people relationally in this setting with people who are godly people who will influence you to no, 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 don't, don't go jump in that sea, drowning yourself in that sea of sin, but continue to walk godly, as Paul suggests of his own life. Number two is, we flip that around, and not only do we want to follow role models of others, but equally we want to offer our lives as role models to others at the same time. So be a role model on godliness as Paul explicitly stated to Timothy, he did say, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. Now, the challenge with that is, how do you invite people to do that without sounding arrogant? You know, it could come across arrogant, you know. You know all about my life. (laughs) all about my righteousness just follow me you know that could come across as arrogant how did paul get away with saying this you know you look at this text and it could sound a little bit arrogant i think one of the ways in which he got he was able to say this was because of the humility in his own life which he wrote about which he stated which he was explicit about and i have a sense that the longer we're in the in the faith with christ the more humble we become there will be experiences that God draws us that way. So the, you know, the, the telling piece with Paul's life is at one point he says, I am the least of all the apostles. So you take all of these apostles and maybe a certain measure of a pecking order there. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm not getting into this pecking order game. He says, I am the least of the apostles of God. And there's a beautiful spirit of humility. Five years later in his life, he comes to another portion, and he's writing to believers, and now he says, I am less than the least of all God's people. I'm challenged by that. Maybe we all could be challenged by that. No longer just the least of the apostles. Now he looks at all of God's people, and he says, I am less than the least. The least is maybe down here. And he says, I am less than the least down here of all God's people. And with that certain spirit of 
humility that he conveys to Timothy and to others, I think he has the capacity to say, follow the example of my life. I think when done in a spirit of humility, and it may not always be something that we say to people, but done nonetheless in a spirit of humility, hopefully in some way we can convey to those around us in this world, we can say, and they're looking at teachings that are wacky maybe, they're looking at a lifestyle that's crazy, they're looking at a purpose that is all over the place, and maybe we can say, you know all about my teaching, you know all about my life, you know about my purpose, my faith, And then we become a model, an example, a role model to other people as well. Hopefully making a difference so they don't go jump off to the dock into the sea of sin. And then a third one that comes through obviously very dominant, in a dominant way here, is this thing about Scripture. Scripture for the one who, as Paul suggests to Timothy, that he should follow his life, but also that we take the initiative to be a role model But number three is keep Scripture as foundational. Verse 14, 15, and 16. But it's for you, continue what you've learned and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do we realize, do we realize how ambiguous and subjective a spirituality is that has no mooring to reveal truth? The absence of the Word of God in society makes for a culture that continues to walk blindly without a sense of where their purpose and their faith might be. May we, as the people of God, continue the discipline of keeping our noses in the Word of God, doing so with intentionality, with focus, with discipline, with interest, with continuity, with engagement, with passion, and with hunger for the Word of God. And our standard should be, read Psalm 119 sometime. The psalmist says the Word of God is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. And it's a statement, a long statement in the Psalms that talks about this hunger and this passion for the Word of God. Maybe we, may we be in the Word of God privately, publicly, and collectively. Um, publicly, it's interesting, we have one small group in our church that two of their meetings over this last year, they had their small group meet in a coffee shop. Bibles open, largely to reflect, be it in a small way, the importance of the Word of God to people in that coffee shop. A small way of witnessing, but hats off to that small group, Byron and Rhonda and your small group, for doing that and bringing that witness to the community. But may we be engaged with the Word of God, be it privately, publicly, and collectively as well, taking advantage of opportunities around us to engage in the Word of God, because it's a critical piece in terms of dealing with this wave of thinking that is really diametrically opposed to the ideas and the thoughts and the thinking of God. So what can we do to counter-cope these terrible times? Follow the lives of those who exhibit godly living. As Paul, be an example. Don't be shy about being an example. 
and make the Word of God an ongoing part of your life. Get serious about engaging in Bible study in connection with the Word, and may it just saturate your mind and change your thinking in terms of how we view this world. Uh, Worship team, if you would please come. We're going to do the song, Give Us Clean Hands. Obviously, there's a lot that's happening in verses 1 through to 9 that's not clean and appropriate. Give us pure hearts. I don't know where all of you are, but as we do this song, may this song be a response for you. If your mind and your heart is not clean, if your hands are not clean, that you would respond appropriately. And that you get out of verses 1 to 9, and you get into verses 10 and following, and you camp out there, put it on a permanent settlement in verses 10 and following, and stay in that portion of the Word of God. So that collectively, as we go out there, we bear influence into this world and this community that we live in.